This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cool Zone Media. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, which I had this whole plan where I was going to introduce in some clever way this time, because I used to try and do that at the beginning of when I started the show, and then I stopped trying to do, and then, like, I was planning it, and then I forgot. So, I'm your host, Margaret Kildray, and this is a show about cool people who did cool stuff. And I have a guest. My guest is Mia. Hi, Mia. Hello! I'm I'm happy happy to be back on happy to be guesting and not hosting a podcast. Yeah, it's a it's a good time. Yeah, for anyone who's curious, what Mia's referencing, she's one of the hosts of. I almost said cool people did cool stuff, but that's the show. <laughs> uh, it could happen here because all shows on this network must have slightly long names that therefore are easy to confuse when you have. Do you have that problem where like one noun and another noun, if they're like similarly formed or just the same word in your head? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Real. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad that it's not just me. The other voice you just heard is our producer. I Sophie. sound I sound like shit and it's because I uh, have a cold. But it that and, and when I have a cold, I have a little bit of a southern accent is what we've learned. Yes. And that's just that. And you're going to have to deal with it. And I know I sound like shit. Don't message me about it. What's fun is ever since 2020, if you have a cold, it's always, you always have to be like, but don't worry, it's not COVID. It's but not it's always, COVID. <laughs> but usually you're talking in person and you're like trying to t- warn. So I had this moment where you're like, are you going to make sure to tell the audience that, <laughs> that it's okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, because um, you test. I mean, I, I'm still not, I, I still am not leaving my house because I don't want anybody else to have this cold. Yeah. I was supposed to. I was supposed to have a doctor's appointment tomorrow for unrelated, and now it got moved for two months from now. Oh God! <laughs> All because I didn't want to give the people working at yeah. the office a cold. They're like, "That's really great of you. See you in two months." <laughs> <laughs> like I've been punished for my moral decision. Yeah, I was like, "All right, I guess my allergies don't matter for two more months, guys." Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, we also have an audio engineer. We do. His name is Ian. And he's the best of the best. 
Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. Okay, listener, it's your turn. You have to say it too. And then we have a theme music. You already heard it. It was by Unwoman. You'll hear it again. It's your cue to press forward 15 seconds approximately six times uh, on your, your thing until you hear the music again. Mia, I was going to ask if you'd ever heard of the rebellion in Patagonia, but then I remembered that the reason that you're this week's guest <laughs> is because a couple months ago or some time ago, you and I were talking about overlooked stories and I brought this one up and then I was like, you should just come on the podcast and be the guest for it. Yeah. It's also very funny because completely unrelated to this mm-hmm. out of the blue, my girlfriend was like, started talking about the rebellion of Patagonia and I was like, Holy oh no, shit. hold on. <laughs> oh my God, you have a deep history nerd girlfriend that rules. He's great. Yeah. And just st- stuff like this just happens every once in a while. I'm like, <laughs> you were like, you can't talk about it because you're because I, when my guests know what the topic is, they are forbidden from researching it <laughs> between, um, which is totally good and not weird that I do that. So, this will probably be a four-parter. Um, this story is worth it. If this show had seasons, I would do a whole season on the rebellion in Patagonia. This story is the reason that there's a show called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. It's not the reason we picked the title. It's the reason I wanted to do a history podcast. I first learned this story, I don't know, maybe five years ago or something. And it was just so fucking cool that I started like looking at how better to tell this kind of history. For a long time, I was just like, I'm going to have a podcast and it's going to be me explaining the rebellion in Patagonia to someone and making them care. I wanted to take someone who didn't care about anarchist history and make them care about this story because it's so cool. It, in this case, it didn't work because I have a feeling that Mia cares about anarchist history because I learned a lot of yeah. history from him. <laughs> but I pitched the show to Cool Zone Media. Here we are. Um, and I didn't come out the gate with this because I wanted to get better at telling stories first because it is a cool as shit story, but it's not a simple story. And it's also um, a story that not a lot of people in the global north have heard, you know? Yeah, I mean, this is like so, I mean, I kind of vaguely had heard of it, but, like, of of the, like, three, question mark, like, big anarchist things that happened in Chile and Argentina, like, this is the one I know the least about. Okay. So, oh, I don't know I'm, about I'm the other ones. Excited. Oh, Wait, yeah. What are some I of the other ones? ones? So, in between about like, 19, 1917 and 1919, there was, like, a mm-hmm. wave of, hu- well, okay, in the... There was just a lot of in in you know, okay, I probably shouldn't have started this without actually <laughs> making sure I have my data specifics right, but there was a whole bunch of general strikes yeah. um in both countries. And yeah. I, I think it was Chile where they tried to do a Bolshevik style coup because the, the the Russian Revolution had just happened and they like looked at it and were like, Oh, hey, and they read a bunch of stuff about how how they did it and we're like oh we're gonna do this here and it was a complete disaster uh the police found out about it everyone got arrested okay i think that was a chilean one and the argentinian one was a bunch of general strikes that got crushed really badly we're gonna talk I about those if yeah yeah um i didn't know as much about the chilean one it makes sense uh the argentinian one is it'll be the end of this week when we talk about the tragic week <laughs> Yeah. 
uh, different than the other The Tragic Week that we talked about in one of our million episodes about Spain. I don't remember which one. This one. Yeah, okay. So basically, because it's this show, I'm going to talk about this thing that happened in 1920 to 1922 in Argentina. And by doing that, I'm going to take this half to talk about before then, because that's what I like to do. Because context is half the joy. Also, because history without context is just like boring to me. It's like the kind of stuff that like, like, it, like if it's like someone showed you like a, a close up, take like the handsomest man and then zoom in on his nose and then send someone a picture of his nose. I'm not going to be like, damn, like what a nose, you know? Like, you got to, like, zoom out and see the face to be like, that is a I don't know. Man. Michael B. Jordan has a nice nose. I'm even, like, a nose girl. I, they said this on air, <laughs> you know, and I regret it. I do it. know this about you. If there's one thing <laughs> I know about Margaret Kiljoy, she's a nose girl. <laughs> um, anyway, so, <laughs> Patagonia, where our story takes place, where no noses exist, lest I get distracted. Patagonia is a region that basically takes up the southern chunk of South America. Uh, I'm explaining this. I have a feeling Mia has a better grasp of history, of geography than the average North Estados-Unidensian. Uh, to, to be fair, my geography is actually... Really, I, I happen to know this, but also I'm terrible at geography. Oh, okay. Like, I... Okay, I'm going to say the, the most embarrassing thing about me is it wasn't until the last few years that I realized that Illinois, the state that I live in, has a border with Kentucky. Oh, I yeah. never realized this. Yeah, because you think Very Indiana be in the way somehow or something. No, you know? no, it doesn't. It's terrifying. No, I know. Why, yeah, why yeah. Are we on border like, with Kentucky. This this must be redressed somehow. <laughs> I like Kentucky. Awful, terrible crime. I like Kentucky as part of Appalachia, but that's fair. I used to, uh, I used to hold that I was only responsible for the geography of places I've been, which is not true. But and then like I used to feel really bad about my bad, uh, you know, Americans, especially white Americans, have this like historically bad grasp of geography or whatever. But I remember once being in the Netherlands. Oh, I'm going to get the details of this wrong and make this whole story make me be the embarrassing <laughs> person. And I remember talking to this person who was like, she was Dutch and she didn't know where Denmark was. And I was like, you have a border with that country. <laughs> like, as an American, I grew up knowing where Canada and Mexico are, <laughs> you know? <laughs> To be fair, I have had cl- I, I I had people in my high school who didn't know where Canada and Mexico were. I, 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 oh, I had I had a, I had a I had a classmate who thought that who thought that I uh, what was it Saudi Arabia was in the Yucatan, huh? It was I, a lot going on there. It was a whole thing. Yeah. Well, we're not going to make any assumptions about people's level of understanding of geography because there's a lot of things that are hard to keep track of. There's a lot of countries in this world, and so Argentina. Um, okay, so Patagonia, uh, southern chunk of South America. Part of it is in Argentina, part of it is in Chile. Uh, none of it is actually an outdoors clothing brand. Uh, and I am annoyed <laughs> that the outdoor clothing brand comes up first when you Google a place where two million people live. Yeah. But it is one of the least densely populated chunks of the world. It is only slightly more dense than Alaska. A lot of it is the Patagonian steppe, which is the eighth largest desert in the world. And it's like kind of just like, shrubby right it's not a cigarro cactus place it's a shrub place most of the story is about argentinian patagonia and it ties into argentinian history more generally 
the shortest version of the story, the 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 elevator pitch that I'm bringing to you late in the first episode. The short version is this. From the years of 1920 to 1922, thousands of indigenous people and rural anarchists threw off their chains, left, led a massive rural strike across a huge chunk of the country. They fought with everything they had to be treated decently by the plantation owners that they worked for. And it was an ostensibly liberal government that mowed them down. Uh, they executed probably around 1,500 people Jesus. who had already surrendered, um, quite likely making them dig their own graves. It is a story that ties together a pacifist assassin, a hardened anarchist bandit whose name is a number, and half a century of organizing culture, organizing and culture, and a ton of other really interesting people. Like, there's like going to be a... Oh, I'm just going to tell you about these people. They're really cool. We're going to get to them. The movie that they made about this event, which won awards around the world, saw a lot of the filmmakers like forced into exile or imprisoned and shit. The governor who allowed it to be filmed saw the end of his career and I think saw jail time, but I'm not actually done writing this episode. Even though I've like read about this stuff a lot, I can't remember that detail and so I'll know it by the time we record the rest. But yeah, no, yeah, the film uh, caused a fuss. That is that is a wild production thing. Like I'm, 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 try, I'm trying to think of if I can if I can remember another film that had that much like political consequences with people who made it. Yeah, I like I, I <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. I know, and like when I find this stuff out, that like even extra made me be like, why did I not know about this story? You know, there's going to be a part where anarchists are going to almost take over Buenos Aires. There's going to be a part where. Like, there's going to be so much stuff. And, like, and I mean, whatever. I, I don't want to blame my ignorance of these things on, like, broader xenophobia and, like, American exceptionalism and, you know, Eurocentrism, but as, like, a broader problem. But that is a broader problem within um, the movement. The movement, I hate that phrase. Okay, anyway. Like, any great story, this story starts... With pastries. Ah, <gasps> did you know this about Argentina? I I, th- I think I do. I'm really excited. Okay, okay. Well, we're gonna get to it. We're gonna talk about pastries. But first, we're gonna talk about Argentina. Argentina is the second largest country in South America. If you don't know your geography, there's a huge country in South America. That's Brazil. Then there's a pretty big country that takes up most of the southern trunk. That's Argentina. Now you know where we are at. It is the eighth largest country in the world. Uh, Buenos Aires is likely the only city that the average person who doesn't live anywhere near there has heard of. Um, if you didn't know where Argentina was, this the city you've probably heard of. About 47 million people live in Argentina. At the time of this story, way less than that. About 10 million people or so are living there. I'm going to speed run the first chunk of Argentinian history. If I'm missing anything major, you should let me know. I'm suddenly going to put you on the hook to pretend like you're an expert in this particular <laughs> country's history. No, a little bit, but I'm not a not an Argentina knower. Yeah. Well, you will be by the time <laughs> we're done, or you'll be a knower about some really strange details about unions. Okay, so Argentina, people have lived there for a long-ass fucking time, uh, a ton of different cultures, some of which were influenced by the Incas to their northwest, some of which weren't. White people showed to fuck the place up in the early 1500s. By the 1550s, you've got Spanish settlements, mostly along the coast. 
it's very to me it felt very comparable to like reading about the u.s where it was like oh the u.s has like been around for a long time or the colonies have been around for a really long time and then it was like only more recently that they were like zoom let's kill everyone and go west i mean they were killing people all along but like you know the westward expansion came later yeah it t- takes them takes them like a well not a hundred years but yeah like 50 60 no well, more than that okay no actually no, yeah in, in the united states it was like until the fucking revolution before the settlers went west oh yeah yeah oh i'm sorry i was for some reason i was doing uh revolution forward to oh when i see there's like coast to coast like yeah, military yeah. control i see yeah no that, makes no, that sense. is like about 100 actually yeah so, in the early 1800s, the settlers in Argentina were like, well, we want to have a colonial state but not be attached to Europe anymore. It worked for the United States. Why can't it work for us? So, they started a revolution. In 1816, they did a Declaration of Independence thing. And then it stayed really fucking messy for decades and they didn't get <laughs> yeah. a constitution for a long ass time. Yeah. And I don't know the details of that. I tried. If, if, if you want if you want a long account of that, mm-hmm. uh, Mike Duncan does a pretty good one on revolutions. Oh, uh, cool. Okay. Latin America. But it's the stuff after that is it's really chaotic and complicated. And yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, I'm a big Mike Duncan fan. That sounded sarcastic, but it's not. Uh, when I built my cabin, I built a huge chunk of it listening to revolution so i like That's in awesome. my mind i'm like oh yeah like the russian revolution that thing where i was wiring the 12 volt uh lights <laughs> that are in my ceiling you know like i remember that the drill bit wasn't right that's the main thing i remember about the part <laughs> 1905 part of the revolution you know which is going to come up today or, or maybe maybe wednesday we're going to talk about 1905 russian revolution somehow it's all going to tie together Aww. we got the spanish civil war in here don't worry anyway so they didn't get a constitution for like a long ass time, decades, right? Before and during independence, indigenous people were getting their land stolen for cattle ranching and I think sheep farming also. Um, and a ton were getting forced to work shit jobs on the ranches. And you get this whole class of people who are um, of mixed ancestry who are just rural peasants who are poor as fuck um, in Argentina. This conquering takes a long ass time because the indigenous people fought like hell. And all the while, the coast is doing its like civil war thing, you know, about what kind of nation to make. Yeah. It took until about 1861 for the like, quote unquote, revolution to get its shit together or, and the modern nation of Argentina to be born. At this point, immigrants start flooding the country from Europe, especially Spain and Italy. Mia, do you know what you get when you let Italians come to your country in the 19th century? <laughs> A bunch of anarchists. Yes. <laughs> like, this is like the single predictor of are there, like, is there going to be anarchism in this country? It's like, do they have a bunch of Italians? Yeah. <laughs> so, pastries. Argentina is the only Spanish speaking country where the word for pastries is factoras. Um, everywhere else, that word means bill or invoice, and it comes from the Latin to make. Because the bakers wanted you to know that making pastries was actual real work that deserved a living wage. <laughs> rips. I know. As for the names of these pastries for which they deserved a living wage, and these are still the case today, apparently. I haven't, I haven't been to Argentina, but there's a lot of articles about this. A lot of uh, everything from political articles to like food articles. Like this is a story that people sometimes hear about. And it's a good story. Some of the pastries include... 
Bolas de Freyela, Friars Balls, Canyoncitos, Little Canyons, Bombas, Bombs, Libritos, Little Books, Suspiras de Monja, Nun's Size, and uh, Vigilantes, Vigilantes. And then there's a pastry called the Cremona, which is a circular, pa- I don't know what the name means, I don't think it means anything saucy. It is a circular pastry that was designed to be a sort of infinity of A's. The A stands for anarchism. Wait, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which gives you a hint of why the bakers have made these types of yeah. things. Because anarchist bakers named the pastries in Argentina in the 1880s and 1890s. As for where to start this particular story of pastries, in, well, first let's start with the thing that they all had to do. They actually, these, these, they just felt that they deserved money for their work of making pastries. And the way they did that was naming them a certain way. And then the way that we deserve, this is an ad transition, this is the worst one I've ever done because it seems earnest and I don't mean it to be earnest. Here's some stuff that you can buy, I guess. In case you need a new car. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, And then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts 
Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. And we're back. And in 1879, General Julio Argentino Roca set out to wipe out the indigenous people of Pat- Patagonia. That was a, that was a jarring <laughs> tone shift. Yeah. I guess, that's a, what, I guess that's what ad breaks are for. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm sure he absolutely would have encouraged you to get all of those things that just happened. Oh, yeah. Although he might not have wanted you to listen to some of the podcasts that probably just got advertised. So... Much like a true crime villain himself, he went on a fucking murder spree, which went with the shitty fucking title, The Conquest of the Desert. Ooh, terrible name, bad thing. Yeah, it's usually portrayed as a genocide because it was a genocide. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was not portrayed that way for, you know, at the time by the powers that be. Um any honest historian looking at it is like, this is a specific plan to eradicate the following groups of people, and they were not subtle about it. Indigenous people were subdued or killed, and settlers moved on to the land. Uh, Indigenous people were forcibly prevented from having children. And then, a year later, General Julio Argentino Roca becomes fucking president of fucking Argentina. Hi-ya. Yeah. And I, it's funny because like I do a lot of these episodes where it'll be like, and then this cool fucking strike and then all these people are fighting cops. And I don't usually like focus on like why people are doing it. Cause like to me, it's like self evident. You're like a poor immigrant in the 19th century. You're fucking starving, you know? And like the people who are presidents are even more blatantly garbage or something than the, av- I don't know, than the average, average president right now in the world is pretty bad. But, so, murder, murder spree guy becomes president. Anarchists are showing up from Europe. The first anarchists and like socialists and radicals and stuff actually arrived earlier, 1871, from France. Um, they were refugees from the Paris Commune. By 1876, anti-authoritarian socialism, aka our friend anarchism, is the dominant strain of leftism in the country. But shit really got going in Argentina in 1885. When my favorite historical anarchist thinker, can you guess? Is it Malatesta? Yeah, it's Malatesta. Yeah. For anyone who's listening, there is an Italian anarchist who I think very fondly of based on a lot of the stuff I've read by him. And he was not afraid to criticize wanton violence. And he believed in creating a better and freer world for all people. But he was not a pacifist either. And I find him very interesting. Erico Malatesta, in 1885... He was in like Naples in Italy and he was like nursing 
cholera victims because that's just what you do in your Malatesta. And then the Italian state was like, we should kill this guy. And he was like, but I don't want to die. I'm not going to do an Italian accent. He was like, but I'd rather not get murdered, you know? So he does what everyone does in this situation, which is um, put himself into a crate full of sewing machines (laughs) and then get himself smuggled to Argentina from Italy. I did not know that's how we did that. That is so funny. I know. And it's like... (laughs) I know. I want to know more about it. Did he like... Did he like... He had to have broken out of the crate on the ship, right? Like, did he just like have enough supplies that he brought with him to like... That's a long trip. I know. I wish I knew. I like... It's possible he just like fucking... Like, at each dock got in and out of the crate. I think it wasn't that he smuggled himself. I think he was smuggled. I think is a better way to put Mm. it. Because we have this like problem of like big man of history shit even leaks into anti-authoritarianism. And we're like, oh, Malatesta, he's the guy, right? You know? And he's like part of a movement, right? And it's a very powerful movement and it has, all, you know, all the workers in it. And so I I think, but I don't know. I I, I tried. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. I, I read a bunch of different things, but I none of the things I read got beyond the, the like one or two sentence part of the story, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, that is kind of the other problem with Ryan Malatesta is he does so much stuff. I know. That. And he's like, yeah, this is this is the thing that for a normal person would be. This is the wildest thing you've ever done, and this this is just like Wednesday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, he's gonna do more shit like that that doesn't even make it into any of the like. If you read a ten-page biography of Malatesta, it does not mention. You're lucky if it mentions he goes to Argentina, even though he like the chain, the dominoes that he starts. Whatever. Anyway, I'll get to the dominoes. So. You know, he's not the guy who brought anarchism. Anarchism is already there. He's sort of a figurehead that people ascribe a lot of shit to. But he's fucking cool. Sewing machine gun. The sewing machine thing is cool. And his friends in Argentina are these anarchist bakers. And they wanted a union. So they formed a union in 1886. And they did this. It wasn't like Malatesta started their union. Uh, another Italian anarchist, uh, Ettore Mattei, he's the name that's most often attached to this union. I think it's just like you know, pick a guy, that's the guy who we're going to write into the history books. And this union has the sick name of the Cosmopolitan Society of Resistance and Placement of Bakery Workers. That's awesome. <laughs> we, need, we, need, we, need to, we need to go back to sick union names. I feel like our union names have gotten kind of boring. I know. We can, we can do better. I know. But they did follow, there's only two styles of 19th century radical newspaper names. There's either the like the torch or the bomb or whatever. <laughs> and then there's like the workers paper and their paper was, yeah. their paper was the working baker. Oh my God. <laughs> um, okay. You know, look, you, you have to use all of your cool naming power on one thing. You have to concentrate it yeah, all to make sure totally. one of them is good. You don't have enough left for the other one. <laughs> totally. I mean, to be fair, I run a podcast called cool people did cool stuff. <laughs> But, you know, I wrote another one called Live Like the World's Dying. That's poetic, right? Um, so, like, look at me plugging my shit. Okay. The working baker was often banned by the government and was often printed and distributed illegally. Which is like, if you're going to have a paper with a boring name, it's got to be the like, oh shit, man, did you get a fucking copy of the working baker? <laughs> like, yo, don't tell anyone. You like open up your trench coat and you pull out a couple copies of the working baker, you know, next to some croissants. Was this one of those things where it was like they had a bunch of friends in like the printing press unions or whatever, or were they like doing it themselves? I don't know the answer to that. There are so many people printing papers at this point 
Yeah, that's true. That like, and we're gonna talk about a bunch more of them. I I, I don't know the answer, unfortunately. I was tempted to just answer and be like, I think it's this, but you know, I don't know. In 1887, the Cosmopolitan Society of Resistance and Placement of Bakery Workers had their first strike. It lasted 10 days. They, the cops tried to stop them. They fought back. And they won the strike after 10 days. Yay. They gained a 30% wage increase. Wow. Uh, shortly thereafter, the rail and steel workers were like, oh, that sounds good. And they went on strike too. <laughs> Hell yeah. The Baker's Union wasn't just one of the first unions in Argentina for a while, like I think like 15 years. It was like the union in Argentina. It was the biggest, the baddest, and the most anarchy. Malatesta wrote their Articles of Incorporation. And the other, which is probably not what they called it. But, you know, he like wrote the, the things that like, this is how we do things. And all the other unions were like, sweet, we'll use those. Thanks. <laughs> also, in 1886, a thing Malatesta did that I can only find the two-sentence version that would be an entire fucking novel if it had happened to anybody else. Malatesta set out to do what, like, everyone in every Western I've ever seen has done. He and four people wandered into the desert looking for gold supposedly hidden there by the Argentinian army that had been stolen from indigenous what? people during the conquest of the desert. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? Yeah. He's just like, I'm not got anything better to do. Malatesta tre treasure hunter art? Not, not what I thought was going to be happening in this episode when I woke up this morning. I want to write this story so bad. <laughs> I'm sure he wrote about it. This man did not. This man wrote a lot, you know? But I like, I might have to learn Italian just to fucking read it, his take on it. And I'm too embarrassed to learn other languages solely for the purpose of anarchist history research. <laughs> like, until I get better at my Spanish, I'm not allowed to do that. Like, the language that people actually speak in the country I live in. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... He returns empty-handed a few weeks later, and who knows? Or maybe he found it all, and I don't know. But, you know, and he just, like, socked it away. He stuck around Argentina for a few more years, and he returned to Italy to keep getting arrested and get organizing and being cool, and one day I'll just, like, give up on life and do a 10-part episode on him or something. Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway, so this is Baker's Union. And part of the reason it was such a big deal, it seems like such a like, minor thing to me, like, a, a baker is like, oh, that's cool. Like, I like making bread. I started learning how to do that, you know? Bread is a really big deal. And it's a big deal in a kind of interesting way that's different than a lot of other places. You did this whole series on food riots and how they're, like, the basis of everything, right? Yeah. And I, I, most of the times, correct me if I'm wrong, most of the times it's, like, Bread is the staple food, and therefore the price of bread is, like, what everything revolves around. And so all these, like, revolutions around bread are, like, we demand bread, blah, 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 right? Basically saying, like, we demand food. We want calories. Is, is, is that a yeah. correct assessment of, like, European? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, also, like, yeah, it's it's just how a lot of – it's just – it's the thing that a lot of food production is based off of for a really, really long time in a lot of places. Okay. Argentina, it's different. It's a class thing. Bre a loaf of bread costs three times more than meat. Jesus. Yeah. 
So a loaf of bread was a symbol of working class resistance because it was a symbol of like upper class bougie shit, right? And I think pastries and stuff like that probably tie into that too. But um, but basically like they're like, we get to eat bread. That is a thing that we deserve. We don't just need meat, you know? Um, so so the... the- <laughs> What I'm getting out of this is the old bread and roses slogan, the significance of the bread and the roses have been flipped. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, and it's just so funny to me because like, yeah, usually like bread, like usually meat is the like, well, rich people get to eat meat. I get to eat meat too. I mean, not in the United States where everyone eats too much meat, but that's, uh, okay. Anyway, um, so the bakers, they're not fucking around. They organized 106 strikes between 1887 and 1907. Wow. That's, that's a lot of strikes. Yeah. And, and, and I guess also part of that too is like given, so I, I, immediately I was like, okay, how many strikes per day is that? I know. I was like, yeah. But, but the, the problem is you can't even do a measure like that because strikes last time. So like there's only a limited number of strikes you could conceivably have assuming your strikes are like lasting more than like a day. Right, totally. I think it makes it even more impressive. <laughs> I know. And like I don't entirely know if these are all baker strikes and they are all over the country, right? There's a bunch of other anarchist like strongholds besides Buenos Aires and most of today's story is going to be about Buenos Aires, but there's like all these all these things are also happening in other cities and towns. Um and one of the reasons that there's such a powerful union is one, the upper class really likes their stuff, right? And two, it's skilled labor and it's hard to bring in scabs because if like all of the bakers, you're like, you know how to bake, you're an anarchist now, right? So like, (laughs) who the fuck are you going to get to scab? It's not lift this heavy thing and move it. I don't believe in unskilled labor, but there's still different scales of certain types of things, right? And, you know, an, an artisan thing is different than factory line production. I'm not trying to talk shit on factory line workers. They so the bakers they form mutual aid societies, which is a a different sort of thing than mutual modern mutual aid organizations that I think is like worth pointing out. These are like anarchist fraternal organizations where the members take care of one another rather than like most modern conceptions of anarchist mutual aid is like for all comers, right? They started turning bakeries into workers' cooperatives, which is like where I like I love when people just start getting to the point where they're like, wait, what? Why do we need bosses at all? Fuck this, right? yeah. <laughs> They coordinated with the other unions. Basically, whenever someone else went on strike, if the bakers joined them, it was over. Uh, <laughs> it would soon spiral into a general strike, which is a fuck ton of, and owners would be forced to give up to the workers' demands. Uh, anarchists led like six general strikes around the turn of the century. And that's not even, there's going to be a bunch more later that we're going to talk about um, that you mentioned yeah, at the top of the episode. Along the way, they named their baked goods to make fun of their three main enemies, the government, the military, and the church. So they had friars, balls, nuns, size, bombs, little cannons. The names remain today. And I'm like, the little books, I kind of wonder, because some of them are like, oh, these are to make, like the, like, or like little cannons are to make fun of the military. I'm like, are they? Or were they like, we like shooting people we don't yeah. like? <laughs> you know? Like, well, I mean, I guess... I guess my counter argument to mm-hmm. that is that I feel like the unions are less likely to have cannons than the government is. That's true. 
Although some of these people came from the fucking Paris Commune, which started over the workers had some cannons. That's true. <laughs> and then the the government was like, wait, we don't want you to have cannons anymore. And they were like, come and take it, like the fucking Texas thing, only it was real and it was about cannons. Anyway, sorry. It was a tangent. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess, no, I guess right, sometimes yeah. we have cannons, like, is the motto of the 19th century workers movement. <laughs> yeah, totally. One of the worst comic strips I ever did was like anarchist pirates and they're like, bring up the cannons. And the person was like, bring up the cannon. The person's like, we have no cannon. And it's like spelled with one N because, you know, there's no holy books and the anarchist tradition. <laughs> and then the other, the pirate captain's like, you fucking pedant, like bring up the cannons with two N's. And he's like, oh, we don't have those either. <laughs> um, I used to write comic strips a long time ago. Anyway, so... Where the fuck am I? Okay, so that's the background, the pastries, part of the background. Um, we're going to do some more background now. Argentina, at the turn of the 20th century, is incredibly full of immigrants. By 1914, Argentina had the highest percentage of foreign-born residents of any country in the world. Wow. Also notably and hard to understand from an American exceptionalist point of view, it had a higher GDP per capita than the U.S. did around this time. So it was like a, a more successful country. For the upper class. The labor movement kept growing, and for much but not all of that time, we'll talk about when it slips in and out of that, it was largely anarchist. A bunch of anarchist newspapers were published and then regularly repressed. The Voice of the Woman was an anarcho-feminist newspaper around that time, edited by Virginia Bolton. And I'm going to talk about her, because I think she's as good of a person as any to understand some stuff about the movement at the time, and she's cool. Virginia Bolton, probably born in 1870. Some things I read said 1876, but I think they're wrong because I did some math, and I also saw other ones that said 1870. She was born in Uruguay, the daughter of working-class German immigrants, and she like grew up to be like a, a well, grew up to be. I think she did this as a kid. She was a shoemaker and a sugar maker, which are like the two jobs that two of the jobs that like poor girls can work. As a teenager, she's hanging out with the Bakers Union. And then she led the first women's strike in Argentina in 1889, which was a seamstress's strike. Um, like, probably 19 years old when she runs this. And I don't even wow. think she's a seamstress. <laughs> <laughs> Although there will be, the, if we count the sewing machines from before, there's at least three. Anyway. Sewing machine. <laughs> yeah. At 20 years old, she becomes the first woman to address a labor rally in the country at a May Day rally. And this is like right when May Day is becoming a thing, right? This is only a couple years after the Haymarket martyrs have died in Chicago. See the very first episode of this show. She was one of the women who ran this newspaper, The Woman's Voice, for two years. Uh, it was an anarchist communist newspaper. And it was not only the first anarcho-feminist South American newspaper, this was the first by and for women publication of any kind in South America. Wow. I love when we get that shit. I love that the first gay newspaper in the world was an anarchist. Like, I love that, like, <laughs> finding all the shit that we're just, like, left out of, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was uh, printed using, basically, the, the sugar workers and the shoe workers were, like, they used their own wages to make this newspaper happen. Um, it was labeled appears when it can rather than, like, monthly or daily or whatever, <laughs> which a bunch of the other newspapers were also using. And it was a little bit like, oh, it's hard to afford. And it was a little bit like, a lot of this shit's illegal half the time we do it, you know? It included voices from anarchist women around the world. And you'll like this part, I think. 
It included articles that like talk shit on specific misogynist anarchist men. Hell yeah. <laughs> and this scared the shit out of shitty anarchist bros. <laughs> she, she toured around the continent speaking on feminism and anarchist communism. She helped set up Casa del Pueblo, the House of the People, a cultural center that had readings, had a library, had an orchestra, and just like all the cultural shit that proved like, it's like one of the things I keep running across that I fucking love. It's like working class, class people coming together and being like, no, we can have all the rich shit. We just have to fucking do it together, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and the other way to get rich shit is to sell advertising <laughs> on a podcast. I mean, um, to buy things, to participate in... Whatever. I keep doing these like things where I'm like, oh, I hate selling ads. And it's like, I do, right? Like, I don't like that this is a thing that's like, part of my really job. you're really good at doing the ad transitions. Thank you. I appreciate it. And it's like, because I, I, I want to like flag it a little bit, but I'm also not like, it's just fucking, it is what it is. Everyone fucking has work. Some people, you, you know, we all work for things and including a bunch of people we're talking about today, you know? And I work for this thing and Word. I really appreciate the chance to get to talk to you all. Not just you two, although you two specifically but even the greater you all in the audience so here's some ads hey girlfriends it's me carol fisher i'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of the girlfriends in season one we told you about the murder of gail katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend bob at one point a woman's torso washed up on staten island and was misidentified as gail she spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. And we're back. I was supposed to do that really really ironically, and I went earnest. I'm very sorry. It won't happen again. <laughs> uh, you re- you know what you did though? You provided context, which is- oh god, <laughs> <laughs> Margaret, context killjoy. The reason I picked that middle name is because no. <laughs> um, the way that's not a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. So later, Virginia Bolton. She forms the Centro Feminino Anarchista, the Anarchist Women's Center, in 1907 with a bunch of other women, including uh, some of the other... Actually, I don't remember if some of these other women got into the script or not. Um, I don't remember. I sometimes... Whenever there's like a ton of names, sometimes I'm like, I'm going to not introduce a new name because I can't remember names for shit. And I used to hate history because it was just like memorizing dates and names. And like, that wasn't what was interesting. If they'd been like... If the history books had been like, here's when like, you know... Jews and Irish immigrants kicked out all the, like, beat up all the fascists in England. I'd be like, whoa, history rules, instead of being like, on what date did the following three named people beat the shit out of all the fascists? And, you know, it's like, uh, that's not the way that my brain works. Do you have that problem? Or are you, are you, where, where are you at with your. Yeah, I mean, I, well, for the longest time I had, I just couldn't do dates at all. It was a real disaster. But then, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think the thing you're getting at is like, it's, History as narrative is just much easier to follow than history as like timeline, which is the way yeah. that it's usually thought of. Totally. And I think I think the, the the thing that the thing that I got to is like once you've once you know the story and you know enough of the context, you like you kind of just start figuring out the dates because yeah. you know like around when what cycle of thing is happening and yeah. Yeah, and then I start caring I only care about dates is because they relate to other things. If I want to say like oh, led this May Day strike. And then I'm like, oh, that's actually really interesting because it was like three years after the Chicago martyrs, right? You know, it's like, that's when it becomes interesting. Like, dates are the things that tie the pieces together of the web, but they're not the substance, you know? Okay, so, uh, Virginia Bolton. When she gets sick, an anarchist theater troupe fundraises for her recovery. Oh, I know. <laughs> In 1902, the state passed a residency law, which is basically an anti-anarchist law. They were like, they, they gave themselves permission to deport any immigrant who disturbs public order. And I think they explicitly name anarchists in the text of the law. This is used, you will be shocked to know, to deport immigrants that they believe are disturbing the public order. Much wow, like who, it, who, could, who could have anticipated that happening in this country and other countries? I know. And so in 1905, 
her partner um, was kicked out of the country during a sweep of anarchists. And and he ended up taking the kids, but they were still dating. So this actually just like seems like a cool thing. Like, I think it was like, he was like, all right, you're busy doing all this shit. So I'll take the kids and take care of them in, in Uruguay. And so she stays in Argentina for a couple more years. A few years later, she becomes the first woman deported under the residency laws. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So she's able to reunite with her family. I doubt she's like crazy bummed about it, you know? Yeah. Where she starts a new anarchist feminist newspaper called The New Path and starts in a feminist association that met at the Electrical Workers Union. Um, and she lived a long-ass life. She died sometime around 1960, still down for the wow. fucking cause. Wow. Virginia Bolton, you were cool as hell. Hell yeah. Anarchism in Argentina. I usually don't read the headlines, the headings of the sections, but here I did. I already did it, and I can't. There's no takebacks. There's no editing. We're live, people. Whenever you're listening to this, I it sends a ping, and me and Mia get back on the fucking mic. Sorry, what was the title to that section? Anarchism in Argentina. Yeah, there's no editing. Now you've said it twice. Ah, crap! Uh. <laughs> <laughs> See, be, being a podcaster means you constantly have to be on your on your toes for the clever traps thrown at you by your producers. <laughs> I can imagine like doing radio and like still having a job the way that we talk. Yeah, I just, I just wouldn't. I, I'm pretty sure that they'd yeah. make a new residency law, and it would be like, <laughs> I don't care if you're a citizen. Yeah, 100. percent I'm like, you're kicked out of the radio. I'm like, uh, <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. Every now and then I do like live radio, like an interview, like talking yeah. about a topic or something like that. And it's so hard not to cuss. It's so hard not to yeah. cuss. And uh, that's why we're on the podcasting. Yeah. Here. Where we can say bad words like fudge. And darn. Yeah. And if they, if we just said the bad ones, but if you heard the not bad ones, it means that they got edited by the <laughs> overlords. So. <laughs> <laughs> Help! The FCC's got to us. Oh yeah. no! <laughs> Just come up with all of the most obscene things I could possibly say that are not technically involving like descriptions of sex or anyway. So it's the 1890s, <laughs> and anarchism is doing its thing in Argentina. Communist anarchists, in particular, have set up a bunch of estudios sociales, which uh, translates to social studies, but I think in this case it means like social centers. Um, that. I think focus mostly on education. Clearly, I didn't find more than one source that gave me more than the name of it and then started trying to infer. And that's not what I'm supposed to do. But they did form what I know more about. They formed what they called resistance societies. Have you heard of this model? No. Um, so I think early anarchists, you know, you start off with these mutual aid organizations, right? Um, which are essentially fraternal organizations in some ways. And then they would move into resistance societies, which is somewhere between that and a union. It's like where they start being like a mutual aid society that's like armed, basically. Or not necessarily armed, but like ready to do direct action, you know? It's like the affinity group model meets the fraternal organization model. Hmm. Um, they're really interesting to me. Eventually, these evolve into the unions, right? Um, this is not the only evolution of unions. Um, I don't know enough about the history, but I... Something to do with the land enclosures in England and some other stuff. Since this is leftism that we're talking about, 
the Marxists and the anarchists waged a bitter war of words against each other for the ah. hearts and minds of the working class. Ah. <laughs> Arguing whether or not you can use tyranny to erase tyranny from the world, said clearly the anarchist. Um, then within the anarchists, they also argued bitterly. <laughs> and they argued bitterly over whether large-scale organizations were chill or whether like nothing should get beyond the resistance society level. And they also argued about whether uh, propaganda of the deed, in this case, like at this time, it's like mostly like a lot of like killing of kings and, and other like rulers and cops and stuff, whether that's justified, right? Um, and so they argue about all these things because history is a wheel and we are lashed to it and it will repeat. Yep. <laughs> in 1897, a Catalan carpenter and an Italian baker came together to form the most influential newspaper on the left, an anarchist paper called La Protesta Humana, um, The Human Protest. By 1903, it was just La Protesta. I was about about to say, like, that's a a surprisingly interesting name for the largest paper. It's like, no, no, screw that. It's not, we're back to the protest. That was too too different. (laughs) Yeah, they're right. They were like, well, we need a, we had to name something else fancy. So they had to unfancy their newspaper, you know? (laughs) By 1904, this is a daily paper. No more appears when it can. This is a, wow daily paper in the country and all over the country there are dozens of anarchist newspapers uh, and other labor papers but again anarchism being the, the dominant thing until about 1915 and anyway there's another there's at least one other daily there's newspapers in spanish italian and french and there's like a chicken and egg thing about the newspapers and the labor struggles because it's you're kind of like they feed into each other and the country is alive with workers fighting for a world without a state or capitalism and they're also those then those same workers are running these newspapers, which are encouraging other people, and like, it's cool. I don't recommend it as a model right now. Just to be clear, when I'm talking about how amazing anarchist newspapers were, I would recommend other forms of media that people actually consume. Whatever <laughs> those might become be. a Trotskyite. Yeah, Do not totally. be the crank standing outside of the school with the newspaper. Yeah, thankless task. Yeah, instead stand outside the newspaper with a little business card that says "Cool people who did cool stuff," and be like. Hey, have you listened to this? And then people will be like, that's weird. Why are you doing that? And they'll be like, I don't know. And and everyone will be a little bit sadder. So in 1901, 7,000 of these different resistance societies send 35 delegates and they form the Workers' Federation of Argentina. Since this was run by anarchists, it was politically pluralist and it didn't turn away workers for not being anarchists. It was also explicitly anti-racist as long as you were down for direct action and worker struggle, you were in. Uh, it was also anti-nativist. There's a lot of, like, more conservative unions were like, we only want Argentinians who were born in Argentina working these things. Mm. And they don't mean indigenous people. Um, for anyone who's not, when you hear nativism, it's not like, it's like the settlers who want only them to be the only settlers. It's that. However, the good, the good people, the Federation, they also included women, including all women unions like the sugar refinery, work, refinery workers from the very beginning. Marxists tried to take it over immediately because they were allowed to yep. be in it. <laughs> um, but there weren't enough uh. of them. So they quit to do their own thing. They had a, a workers' party whose first goal was to centralize all control over workers' struggle in Argentina. Uh, never change authoritarians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The group they formed was called the UGT. So then the workers, minus the grouchy Marxists who cut themselves out, they just went fucking trade by trade and got better better hours and better pay. 
The sign painters got the eight-hour day in 1901. The dock workers got the nine-hour day in 1902. They're just like fucking doing it. They're just like, all right, we're we're like all the workers. We can just do... I mean, they clearly can't immediately do what they actually want, right? They can't... They don't have enough power to like end capitalism, right? But they are like... They know how to get certain stuff done and they are getting stuff done. In 1904... They changed FOA, changed their name to FORA, or F-O-R-A. They added regional to the name, Federación Obrera Regional Argentina. Why did they add regional? Can you guess? It's not immediately obvious. Is, is it one of those, like, were this thing, but just in this area, like, there's eventually no. more? Or is it some weird, okay. But weirder than that, it's kind of like when people say so-called United States of America. Oh my God. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely incredible yeah. stuff. Yeah. They were refusing to acknowledge that Argentina is a nation state. Hell yeah. It is a region. <laughs> nation states shouldn't exist. And since th- at this point, they're like, look, we're anarchist communists. Our goal is a classless society without a state or private property. And so they're like, fuck the nation of Argentina. Their influence is creeping even into that Marxist offshoot, the the UGT, and it stops being Marxist and starts being neutral syndicalism, uh, which means that they're like, want to use syndicalism, but they're not picking a specific ideological line. And so at this point, they start becoming way more down with direct action. The Marxist version was like way more reformist, actually, at this point, which is funny because that's not the way that people would necessarily assume or, or act today. What right? what like point is this at, roughly? Like, is it 1905. You know, five, okay, yeah, that makes sense. This is ah, this is yeah. this is the the, the before the Bolsheviks. We need social democratic <laughs> Marxists. Yeah, yeah, no, actually, that's a that's a good way to put it. Yeah, totally. And uh, so they start becoming more down with general strikes and shit. So the two groups start working together better. And there's like all of these times. I'm not going to get into all of the most of the books that I read about this stuff are just the back and forth between these unions, and it does not <laughs> yeah. actually interest me beyond like a certain <laughs> level, you know. But, like, they keep trying to get together, and it sometimes works and it sometimes doesn't. And when it works, it's actually really fucking beautiful. So I, like, get why they kept trying to come together. But they co-run a bunch of general strikes, which is cool as shit. They had a three-day general strike in 1907 that ended in total victory for the workers. Uh, And then in in 1907, the same year, they had a three-month general strike that started as a tenant strike. And was, like, started by women, actually, specifically women tenants, uh, because... One of our villains is going to be related to this. Cops are murdering strikers wherever they can because they're fucking cops. And people are getting arrested and deported constantly. And so a lot of these strikes are actually about the residency law. They're like, please get rid of the law that lets you deport us. And the state's like, but we want to deport you because you keep having strikes, (laughs) you know? And so they would like catch like La Protesta's editors and be like, ha ha, and like kick them out of the country, you know? Uh, I think they had to laugh like that. It actually wasn't legal to arrest someone unless you go, ha-ha, when you do it. A lot of people got off on uh, technicality because not everyone could laugh like that. There's one guy who's like the main repression guy, Colonel Falcon, the the head of the Buenos Aires police, who swore to eradicate the anarchists. Spoiler alert, the anarchists eradicated Colonel Falcon. Hey! And his full name is Colonel Ramon Falcon. And if that isn't an asshole name, <laughs> I've never heard one. Yeah, that's an 80s action film cop name. Yeah, totally. 
If you are from the upper class, you are not allowed to name your kid something that rhymes. I'm sorry, I don't make the rules. I just make the rules. Or my Spanish is worse than I think and it doesn't rhyme. But I'm pretty sure it does. The accent's in the same place. Yeah. (laughs) He'd been an officer in the desert campaign, that genocide of indigenous people I talked about earlier. And then he'd risen through the ranks uh, by repressing the, like that 1907 tenement strike by immigrant women who couldn't afford their rent. So on May 1st, 1909, there's like this huge crowd, I think 60,000 people or something at the May Day demonstration. And Falcon's men shoot into the crowd. Uh, they kill either eight or 12 people, depending on your source. I, I'm going to put the more reliable at 12, including uh, children and the elderly. And they wound more than 100 other people. The, the UGT, the neutral syndicalists, they call for a general strike the next day in solidarity with the anarchists. And this one, the anarchists were allowed to organize again, and over 800 imprisoned anarchist workers who'd been arrested in the strike were set free. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's not a lesson in there for anyone. <laughs> 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 Certainly <Yeah>. not for me. <laughs> Sectarianism is fine when I do it. <laughs> Even though we get the fuck over ourselves. Anyway. But the eight or 12 dead workers and children made some people really fucking angry. They made one person in particular angry enough to decide to do something about it. Actually, lots of people did stuff about it. Calling for a general strike. That's one of the things you can do about it. But one guy, his name was uh, Simon Radowitsky. And he was a young Jewish anarchist, just 18 years old. He was from Ukraine. And he was like... You know what? He'd been studying magic, right? And he wanted to do a magic trick. He wanted to make Colonel Falcon disappear into a cloud of blood. That's probably what he said. That's probably the way he phrased it. Uh, It's also what he did. He got himself a bomb, and Colonel Falcon got himself a funeral, and Simon kills Ramon Falcon. And that's honestly, it's honestly really impressive that, I mean, I'm assuming this, well, actually, I don't know why I'm assuming this kid's a first time bomber, but. First time bombing actually working and not blowing up and killing you is really impressive, especially with like terrible 1900s bombs. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, 19, yeah, yeah, no, it's still not a great period. And I, I actually, I think people will know this because I've said it before on the show. I specifically don't learn about bomb technology because I'm fucking too paranoid. I have no idea. <laughs> you know, that's reasonable. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I just, I, I just, I just assume that like, well, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Like, I, 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 I just assume on average that if someone is trying to make a bomb, they're going to blow themselves up. And th- this is the extent of my... Yeah. You heard it here yeah. first. We are not advocating anything. No, anti-bombing. I want this on the record. <laughs> put, put, play this in the courtroom. Bombing bad. Don't do it. Mine's neutral. I, I, you know, with the way the rest <laughs> of the script goes, I can't. Uh, so, how, for, how it all went... And the wild life that Radowitzki lived and the wild life of the woman who later got him free from prison and the week when Buenos Aires almost became an anarchist society, we're going to talk about on Wednesday. Hey, come back. You have to come back. You have no choice now. You've I know. been hooked. I know. <laughs> the cliffhanger. It's the cheap trick that I always... Um, there's a word uh, for when you like specifically point out that you're doing something coat hang no uh i don't know there's a thing that i'm doing and the thing i'm doing is switching over to plugs mia hi 
What do you do? Who are you? How'd you get here? Yeah, um, I... Those are a lot of existential questions there. Uh, the thing that I do is, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm one of the hosts of It Could Happen Here. You can find us wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Uh, yeah, I we're on Twitter and Instagram at Happen Here Pod. Uh, also, you can find Cool Zone Media. Yeah, you can't find me on Twitter anymore because I got banned for I. Uh, a, a statement that I want to put on the record was not a death threat, but was interpreted as one towards transphobic New York Times wow. <laughs> columnists. Um, wow. Yeah, so uh, rip me. You can no longer find me on the internet. Uh, yeah. Mia's you tweet can find was, the podcast that I do. <laughs> Mia's tweet was, I do not advocate bombing the following person. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, I... I I, I, I merely suggested that it would be bad if New York Times people, if New York Times columnists were treated the same way that trans people are, and this was interpreted as a death threat. So that's funny. I mean, that's fucked yeah. up. <laughs> well, it, yeah, yeah. So rip me. Uh, yeah. So don't find me there. Get off of social media. Go do strikes. Yeah. I am on the internet. I have a Substack. It's under my name, Margaret Killjoy. I also now have another, it's not really a podcast, but it's a thing. It's a thing. It's in this feed. It's in the It Could Happen Here feed. It's in all the feeds. I somehow slipped it into every feed. It's in, uh, what's a podcast that's clearly not in? It's in um, Revolutions by Michael Duncan's that thing. I have a thing that I'm doing called the Cool Zone Book Club. And because my other thing I do is write fiction, and I also edit fiction, and so I am going to be finding amazing short stories and short books and reading them to you. And every Sunday on this feed and the It Could Happen Here feed and probably not the Revolutions feed by Michael Duncan, but you should go listen to it. You probably already do if you listen to the show, to be honest, but if you don't, you probably should. I don't know why I'm plugging him, but I listen to it. He doesn't know who I am. <laughs> Uh, that's what I have to plug. Sophie, what do you got? That, that's what I was going to plug. Oh, sorry. You stole my plug. You would have done it better. Let's hear it. Um, well, normal me would have, but sick me. Uh, uh, Margaret, Margaret Kiljoy, do you have a book club? I do have a book club. Is it called the Cool Zone Book Club or yeah. the Cool Zone Media Book Club? You know, unclear. <laughs> unclear. But, uh, but uh, what what book are you discussing first? Well, my own book, The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion. I am reading it to Robert Evans, who is an obscure uh, journalist who writes about drugs. Never heard of him. Yeah. He has a book. It's called The Vice, A Guide, of History of Brief Vice. History Brief of History Vice. of Vice. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah I, got so I, I got a signed copy of that. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, it'll be worth something someday, you know, when, when it makes it big. Yeah, if you ever. I don't know why yeah. this is funny. <laughs> it's kind of loopy today. But it it is. But it is kind of funny. Um. Yeah. So we got we got the cool zone. I, I'm gonna call it the cool zone media book club. I'm okay. Full name it. Cool. Uh, and and you could check that out every Sunday in this feed or the it could happen here feed or whatever feed you're feeding. And you can also check us out on Wednesday to hear the rest of this part of this longer story that is absolutely worth it and I'm not being sarcastic this is one of my favorite stories that I know bye Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media for more podcasts from Cool Zone Media visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 